Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you. Appreciate that. Uh, a big loss for you personally, of course, uh, but really for the greater Jewish community as well. Uh, the sudden passing of uh, Mr. Richard Stone uh, a few days ago, and uh, you better than anybody could talk about his leadership in addition to uh, how wonderful a person he was. Uh, I, I thought we'd start with that uh, this week uh, with you addressing uh, the loss that um, both the personal loss and the communal loss that we've suffered. Uh, absolutely uh, a loss for the community, for his family, of course. Uh, and as you said, he was uh, a closest friend, and we uh, uh, he, he, he was involved in Soviet Jewry from the 70s. He went to Russia, in fact, uh, as one of the shlichim in the 70s. He was professor of law at Columbia, I think, for 40 or 50 years, 50 years altogether. And he was, he was brilliant, uh, widely respected, highly rated as a professor, but widely respected as an attorney. He argued cases in his 20s at the Supreme Court. He was um, someone who grew up in the nobility of New Orleans. Uh, his family, very prominent. His father headed a major law firm, and his mother very involved. And on his own, and with the influence of certain individuals, he... Uh, gravitated towards the from community and and eventually ended up spending years at the Mir Yeshiva in, in Israel, at Merkos Harav uh, in Israel, and continued learning. He did the whole Dafyomi cycle the last time, and I traveled with him many places in the world, and no matter where we were on Muslim aircraft flying to a Muslim country, there he was with his Gemara to keep up with uh, the Dafyomi uh, whatever he undertook, he undertook seriously. His uh, chesed and tzedakah were done quietly, but were uh, manifold of what people know. And he, he just w- was, as a person, so warm and wonderful. And as you said, he died suddenly on Sunday morning while he was planning, uh, finishing his the last stages of uh, Aliyah and of getting Israeli citizenship and of uh, purchasing a place in Israel. Uh, he uh, he was chairman of the Conference of Presidents. He was chairman of the National Conference of Soviet Jury. He was very active in the OU and a wide array of other uh, organizations, uh, but contributed to even uh, more. And he will he will be lost. It, it, the sense of loss will be great. So we'll carry on because he he lives such a vacuum that. Very few people could fill. For those who don't know, the uh, the conference of presidents essentially um, there's a lay leadership position. Uh, he he held that as you indicated, uh, in addition to many others over the years, but he held it for a very prominent term. And uh, you, of course, are are the uh, professional end, if you will, uh, of the conference for all these decades. Um, it must be uh, it, it must be unique. Uh, and this is not to belittle anyone else's leadership in terms of the lay leaders. So you've 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 worked with some great ones over the years, but it must be unique when you have a partnership that just clicks, where someone becomes a close friend, and you're able to accomplish uh, so much, and in in a really pleasant environment, or in a, even more pleasant environment, I should say, when you're working with something like that. Just talk about uh, how much one can accomplish when they have a great partner to be able to do so with. 
Well, it's certainly true. The really uh, time-saving aspect was that if he would say a sentence, I got the paragraph or word, and, and I would understand the sentence. And sometimes it was just uh, eye exchanges at meetings and things where we, we understood what we needed to do. But he was somebody who would talk truth to power and, you know, would consult. We would uh, arrive at conclusions about how to deal with certain issues. I've been privileged for all the 50-plus years to uh, have the most amazing people as my partners, and I believe it's a partnership. Uh, the layperson is still the boss, and the entire job to, to help make them look good and work with them, and the truth is that they make us look good as well, that I, I had amazing people like Morris Abram, I mean, outstanding people, and Richard was in the top tier of any group that you could put together. Um, and they come from varied backgrounds. They were very non-observant uh, to very observant. There were people who were right-wing and left-wing. Uh, but the truth is that the job requires that you come to the consensus, which means you operate out of the center to, to bring together uh, the consensus of the community and to try to reflect it. And, the, and to bring the others along where they didn't, like one of right. some of the issues related to Iran, et cetera. And he was uniquely able to do that because people trusted him. People, you know, saw that he wasn't there for an ideological, from an ideological perspective, but rather, you know, trying to assess what was best for the community and leaders trusted him in the White House in Israel. And BB would always ask that Richard introduce him at her conferences because he did such an amazing job. Uh, with the uh, the introductions, and he he um, you know the, if there's tension in an organization between the, a layperson and the professional, it, it cripples the organization. And the truth is that it's the professional's job to adjust and to be able to be flexible to work with the people of all stripes and different kinds, and to bring them together in in a constructive way for for both of you to succeed. Right, 100%. For those of you just tuning in or noting the uh, sudden passing this past Sunday of Richard Stone, who did serve as the uh, chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, and uh, as you're hearing, uh, both a professional and personal close friend of uh, our very own Malcolm Honline. Um, you know, it, we, we talk about the, uh, the, divi- the divide. We often speak about the divide between religious and secular in Israel. And then this week, uh, we learned of the passing of uh, Uri Zohar. I was curious how you look at his life, which really bridged both of those parts of Israeli society in a unique way. He absolutely did. And I actually met him before he became religious, and then after he became religious, um, or I should say observant, right. and he uh, clearly was religious before because he was inclined to do this, and it was a rather sudden shift, but, you know, it wasn't a mercurial decision because you saw how he sustained it and how he, how seriously he took it, and because he was such an important uh, personality, cultural personality, his, uh, his decision influenced many people, at least raised questions for many people about, and I'm sure many mocked his decision, but he proved how sincere he was and how this was motivated by conclusions he drew and uh, sense the things he sensed that, that this was the right derech, the right way to go. And until uh, now, he, you see how he influenced people and his voice 
uh, carried a lot of weight. The media would interview him because he was still Uri Zahar, the top actor at the time. And uh, and I think that it's a, it's a, it was a remarkable transition um, that people still marvel at. Yeah, no question about that. All right, some of the news of the day. Uh, what do you make of the uh, meeting between Naftali Bennett, the Prime Minister of Israel, and the Secretary General of the IAEA? Well, it's an ongoing process right now, trying to assess where the talks are going to go, where Iran is going to go, that Israel has made clear its red lines and that it's not going to shift its position on, on those. The um, I think that we have... Uh, a critical moment, uh, Iran threatened to respond to any unconstructive action at the IEA governor's meeting, which is on Monday. Uh, France, Britain, and Germany, I think the U.S., are pushing uh, the board of governors to uh, c- criticize and rebuke Iran for failing to answer the questions that have been longstanding about the uranium traces at undeclared sites. And... And the Iranians, of course, keep saying that it's only a peaceful program and that they would respond very strongly to unconstructive actions at the Board of Governors. Uh, So we'll see Monday what happens in the next stage, but I think the frustration level at many places is being felt. And most of all, I think, um, you know, Israel conducted a massive exercise this week um, and one part of it uh, was the Air Force simulating an attack on Iran in Cyprus. And they flew over the Mediterranean and Cypriot airspace. They had some exercises on the ground in Cyprus. There were also naval uh, units involved, as well as uh, cybersecurity uh, efforts. This is uh, meant as a message, but it's it's a practical one, meaning that the Israelis, this is, the I think, the biggest um exercise overall that's been going on uh, that was ever undertaken and it uh, involved uh, exercises in Israel as well. Uh, You saw the trip of some uh, U.S. officials and supposedly also Israelis to Saudi Arabia and new exchanges there. A lot of this is driven by the threat of of Iran and the general sense of of where we're at now. Um, the, The new uh, um, analyses say that they will have enough explosive material for five nuclear weapons in less than half a year, and uh, within a month and a half, they were already up to up to their third. That the level of enrichment, the level of uh, stockpiling, is far beyond what people have uh, have uh, exercised. And the UN says that they have enough to produce a, a nuclear weapon that they're enriching at sixty percent. They're supposed to be three point five percent. And to go from 60 to 90, which is weapons grade, is just uh, you know the technical move that wouldn't take long. So they have 10 kilograms more than they were supposed to than they had a year ago, or three months ago even. They had, I think three months ago was up to uh, 33 or 34, and now it's over 43. I know these sound like uh, technical technicalities, but believe me, they have real implications. By the way, we should note that if we know about the Air Force, Israeli Air Force exercise in Cyprus, then the Iranians also likely know about the Israeli Air Force. <laughs> and you can be sure they were flying planes, spy planes. Uh, um, by the way, you know, uh, there's another thing when people always ask about 
the implications in the people, you know, the demonstrations in Iran have gotten more and more widespread, and they're continuing and they're occurring more frequently, meaning the intervals between the demonstrations are less, more bold in terms of uh, willing to stand out uh, publicly and, and attack, calling for death to Khamenei, which is, you can understand, is a very courageous move when you're being watched. Yeah. And, and the, um, the, the, they're looking at the various means right now of, uh, uh, the people and how to bring their message because there's food shortages, there's a water crisis. The GDP, gross domestic product, from the, over the last three years is half of what it was. It was four hundred forty-five billion. It's down to one hundred ninety-two billion. It's currency worthless. The people can't buy anything because stuff isn't worth anything, and they don't have food. There's a, a, a massive shortage in Iran, and now you see the public expressions and the West instead of standing up with the people, don't do anything. Don't encourage them. Don't express support for them, which is horrendous. How do we judge success of these demonstrations? Because, I mean, again, I know the media here doesn't report any of it. You're the only one talking about it, frankly. Uh, but, if, but if they are, you know, if, if they are more aggressive or more, you know, uh, if they're accomplishing an even greater deal than they have in the past, how do we judge the success? How do, we, don't, we don't hear of any actual change there, even though people are taking to the streets, as you described. It's a very good question, uh, both how you measure it whether when you have a Western press that doesn't even report right. on it. In 19 of 31 provinces, you had massive demonstrations wow. and and continuing demonstrations. Uh, you know, anywhere else, this would have been headline stories. Yeah. And the um, so the measures, number one, do the people continue, despite the fact that they get no resonance in the West, no expressions of support, except from... Uh, a few people in a few uh, individual countries that that uh, try to help right. or encourage at least for them to do it uh, to to sustain it, not to think that there's a, just a, a completely deaf ear to all of this to their cries. And if you want to change the government in Iran, that's the way to do it. You don't need to go to war. You, the people would do it, and there's less and less support even in the higher ranks. So the, what I measure is by by the level of dissent increase going higher and higher in the Supreme Leader's House, in the IRGC, and to see that despite the, the repressive regime and the pressures that are being brought on them, whether there's uh, more, the, the level of dissent is higher, people are waiting to see if uh, Khamenei dies, people are waiting for this and for that to see what's going on. But I can tell you within the higher echelons, there is tremendous dissent. What was the world's reaction to the Iranian the seizure of the tankers in the Gulf this week? So they, they seized the Greek tankers, and there was uh, outrage. It was a retaliatory move for the seizure of a Iranian tanker. But it shows how bold Iran is willing to be, because they don't believe that the West responds to anything, and that they're willing to take the risk. Uh, you know, there was no real gain. It didn't, mm. it didn't secure Iran more because they seized a tanker. But it's, uh, it was a message from Iran, don't mess with us. But it was also, you know, uh, a thumb in the eye of the West. And, of course, they responded, I think, with, with strong statements. But it should have been an opportunity to take strong action. 
Do we know when the president, meaning the president of the United States, do we know the president's trip to the Middle East is going to take place? And uh, it, 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 it seems like, based on what I'm reading, both Israel and Saudi Arabia are on the visitation list. Any other countries that are going to be uh, included? It's not clear yet. Um, but it looks like it would be, I would say, the third week or so of June. Soon. Um, they haven't announced it. Uh, because obviously for security and other reasons and things still being worked out. Um, but I, I would think that's a target time for it. And Saudi Arabia is a big deal if he goes there, right? Very big. Remember his initial comments, very critical of Saudi Arabia. And if Saudi Arabia will announce that they're going to increase production, I mean, I think there are sweeteners that Saudi Arabia can give that would make it uh, conducive for the president to go there. Because remember, after Kosoji and all of that, the, the very heavy love of criticism, personally directed at MBZ, uh, who emerged out of all of this and shows how smart he is and clever that uh, everybody's predictions uh, about his downfall when he has emerged pretty strong. Wow. <laughs> um, and and uh, do we know if there are other countries that are going to be visited? Or at this we point? I, uh, we, they haven't announced any other countries yet. But I would assume that the, if he's going that far, he'll find other places uh, to visit. Um, you know, if, if there are opportunities, I mean, there there are talks about some gestures that Saudi Arabia will make to Israel, or I don't believe that you'll have diplomatic relations that some people were speculating. I don't think that's going to happen. But um, uh, he will pay a visit to the hospital, I think, in, in East Jerusalem, whether he goes to Ramallah or not, we'll have to see. It could be very interesting. Uh, meanwhile, a week later, the, the the government of the state of Israel is still stable, right? I mean, stable may be the wrong word. But it's still standing. It's, <laughs> it's still there. Uh, with, with rumors flying that now the Netanyahu-Sar deal may be closer than we originally expected, and that you know could make a difference if there is a new election, right? A Sar could. Yeah, arrangement. Correct. I meant Sarlikov. Yeah, not necessarily Netanyahu. Oh, good point. Right, good point. Um, that we'll have to see. But Netanyahu still, in all the polls, shows that he's very strong. Sar denied the negotiations, but he did, when you you know they're having conversations through third parties, so you got certain deniability that he wasn't negotiating with Kud. He was negotiating with businessmen with close ties and things like that. But the, but I think people. Uh, increasingly want stability. They're afraid that, you know, that the government every week is subject to another pressure right. uh, and and uh, some level of instability. And the, um, but again, the polls show that uh, Netanyahu is by far the, the person regarded as the strongest leader. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world of web at NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. By the way, this um, the book that came out where it was cited that BB was ready to give up the Golan a few years back in exchange for peace. I mean, the, the truth is that any author could write that about any prime minister, because I don't think there's ever a prime minister that has not considered, you know, whether the, whether there should be a deal regarding the Golan. Is that a fair statement? That's very fair. I think it's so true it's a, that right. that piece with uh, Syria, you when know, when uh, Rabin, uh, uh, we were the first people briefed on the Oslo Accords. He, they, they asked us to fly over the day before, and we got there just as Paris came back, and they briefed him, and then uh, Prime Minister Rabin 
uh, briefed the chairman of the conference, Lester Pollock and I, uh, and we were literally the first people to know because his own staff, his chief of staff, who took notes at the meeting, wrote in his biography in his book that that's how he learned about what went out. And he said, "Guys, to, to the to, to Barbine's own staff, you won't believe what I just heard." Wow. And uh, um, and he spent an hour and a half briefing. I kept asking him these questions about you know the implications and the the the, the complications of. Uh, uh, of uh, of what they were uh, proposing, so the um, you know everybody can be feel like they're a prime minister. Everybody knows better as an armchair, but when you're in the position, and what Rabin said to me is, he said everything you told me that I had raised with him about Syria and about other things, and why these concessions to the Palestinians. He said. You know, the Palestinians and Syria do not represent existential threats to Israel. Iran and Iraq do. I can't fight all four at the same time. So if I can get any of these off the table, it will enable us to focus on the real existential threats to Israel. So Syria has always been on the table, as you suggested. Uh, I think what they had in mind, I think, was different. And I think as time goes on, has gone on, you know, and the obvious implications of, of and uh, I think even in, inconceivability today of abandoning the Golan and allowing Syrian troops back up there. Uh, but there were maps, there were discussions, there were intermediaries who went to 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 Assad to propose different uh, arrangements. Uh, but I can tell you that I, when I went to see Assad and and Bibi knew before and et cetera. Uh, I, there was no rush to, to reach an agreement and to to uh, give up the Golan. Let's backtrack for a second. Would Prime Minister Honline have uh, followed up the way Prime Minister Rabin did? As he's telling you this about the four, let's make it two. I mean, the, the way I'm putting it is, you know, take four enemies and make it two enemies to concentrate on those two. Um, I mean, was it logical enough the way you heard it that you said that, you know, you, you might agree to do the same thing because it sounds like a... You know, as much as uh, you're worried, as much as he was worried about the existential threat that the two of them, meaning uh, the Iranians, etc., posed, uh, none, nonetheless, one has to question whether this was a good overall strategy in the long run. So you have to understand that this came after more than an hour of the most intense discussion possible by asking questions, and he was like a, a Rebbe with a Talmud. He answered with patience everything. I asked why they were giving up Ramallah, why they would do everything, and he gave me answers, and some made sense. Some I did not think were were necessarily the the right approach. But uh, on this, I, I told him that if you create the, at least the context, that people will be able to examine this in a different way than it came across, you know, to in the public announcement, initial right. announcement to everybody. I said that is a logical context, at least, that people can relate to, Which, and then make an assessment. But he was never successful at doing that, agreed or not? Well, from the beginning, I think the, some of the initial leaks and stuff were, were uh, very detrimental, not by him, by others involved in it, who he publicly chastised uh, thereafter. Uh, the, and, you know, when you want to reach a deal, if you, if you can make a deal with anybody, like the Abraham Accords, it was the fact that it was quiet and then comes out in a, in a, in, in a controlled way that the parties controlled the message. 
because you also have domestic constituencies that you have to worry about. You have to think about, you know, the ramifications. And when Paris came back with the London Accords, he actually stopped in New York first. And I hosted a big meeting for him, and he revealed the doc, the the, uh, the plan. But he did it, and I think because he was so tired, he came right from the plane from London to the meeting, and he did a terrible job. And afterwards, he invited me to his room for me to read the actual document. And I told him, this is not the same thing that you said downstairs, where the reaction was totally negative from the biggest labor supporters, everybody. It was negative across the board and then played a big role in killing it. And the fact is that it was not a bad deal, which you remember it's the deal he reached with the King of Jordan. And it was, and he said to me at the time, he said that the problem is that every subsequent deal for Israel will be worse than the one before because they'll always make, have to make more concessions and more. And so often it's the way issues are presented and it's the way, you know, the media um, tries to exploit them or, or preempts the actual announcements. It can poison the atmosphere before you even get a proposal out. Yeah, I hear that. By the way, you mentioned we're, we're talking about Oslo. Uh, we never we never mentioned or acknowledged uh, in the middle of May, Uri Savir passed away. And he was one of the architects of the entire thing, and I know that you you dealt with him a million times. And what, no matter no, no matter what people thought of him and what he was doing and what he was encouraging, he, you can't deny that he was a an, an important person in that era of modern Jewish history. Very important at a very young age, and he was consul general in New York, and he did a very good job when he was here. It's true, ideologically, we we had many disagreements, but we were very close friends. And I sustained the relationship long after he was consul general. Unfortunately, he was sick in recent years, and um, and he, as you note rightly, he passed away. Yeah, in the middle of May, um, and uh, I don't know how that slipped by, but I'm glad we were able to to mention it now. Um, I, I think I have this right, uh, unless I misread the article. Uh, there's a big difference in a lot of ways between Iron Dome and Iron Beam. Am I right about that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, is this true that Iron Dome, which you know is is um, is so difficult to financially maintain and becomes a burden, so to speak, uh, not just on Israel but on those who are opposed to aid to Israel, etc. But Iron Beam can be can be implemented and utilized to defend Israel at a very inexpensive price. So, um, Iron Beam means a laser approach. Right. Every time you fire. Iron Dome, which means you fire actual missiles, it costs fifty to hundred thousand dollars because it's not just one missile; you have to fire two, and it's you know there's a limited number that you can have on the on the truck, and uh, and as I said, a, a missile, a, an attack missile from Gaza that could cost two thousand dollars because they they're very crude, most of them, uh, and it takes a hundred thousand dollars to take it down. It's not a very good exchange. With the laser, it would be a couple dollars for the electric beam that would destroy um, the incoming missiles. So you reverse the proportion and the cost factors. But, number one, it's not really ready. I think it's some of these announcements are premature. Right. There's a lot of work being invested. Israel's putting $250 million into it. There are some that are uh, working on um, lasers that would be fired from drones. Uh, there are other um, 
formulations that different companies are working on. No one has yet done it, and there are problems because when you fire a laser into space, there's a lot of interference. You know, people don't know there's dust and everything, and that distorts then the trajectory of the missiles. So it could go left or right and stuff, so you have to find a way to overcome that, some of the obstacles, and it also loses speed then. And uh, now we're in the age of hypersonic missiles flying fast and higher, the, um, uh, you need a stronger beam. And that is something they are working on. I think the prime minister is sending messages that Israel is working on things, and but projecting. It's not a reality. Wow. Unbelievable. Could be a reality, though. In a in a relatively very short time, yeah, relatively short amount of time. <laughs> I'm sure people are very impatient, frankly. By the way, one of our listeners points out on the app, and uh, I don't know if this is correct, that only Begin wasn't ready to give up the Golan. Uh, with Begin, nothing against Menachem Begin, but with his track record of what he did with Egypt, I can't imagine he never considered giving up the Golan. For a I think you can certainly say that Shamir would never have given up the Golan. Uh, uh, Begin, as you said. Um, I mean, he felt strong attachment, and it would have been would have taken a very strong pull to to give up the Golan. I don't think Rabin, Rabin was not anxious to give up the Golan, and the fact is, during his years, he didn't give up anything, right? Any territory, Likud governments gave up uh, mm-hmm. territory. Yep, we know that. That's for sure. Uh, the health and the. Um uh, uh, the uh, safety of Vladimir Putin. What can you tell us about the cancer rumors? What can you tell us about these supposed assassination attempts against them? So the assassination attempt is something new, but it's not surprising. Uh, there were reports of this uh, circulating. Also, if you, you look at his face, you saw that the, that um, many months ago he looked um, different, uh, very bloated face, and, and somebody who works out and put... Uh, his physical condition as a priority it was very surprising, uh, and but already years ago there were people who thought he had uh, he had cancer, no no proof of it, and even now it's been very carefully guarded. Uh, he does appear in public still, even though in a more limited way, and nobody is sure exactly where he was operating out of the last couple of weeks. So. It's, it's very possible that there were assassination attempts. As you know, people are increasingly dissatisfied and demure from the support for the incursion into and the attack on the, on Ukraine and some of his other adventurism. The economic conditions in the country are terrible. The, the currency is losing its value. The, um, there are food shortages there, too. And the, um, you know, if you start getting demonstrations and, and public manifestations against it and as they as the body as the toll the body bags uh, toll gets um more recognition because people don't know that their kids died they just haven't heard from them but in many cases in most of the cases i'm told they don't know and that the number is in the tens of thousands uh they have very little tolerance level for that we saw it in syria we see it in ukraine but they're not even making a move that would indicate that they want to end this thing they're not even making a move that would indicate they would you know try to figure out a way to to leave gracefully i don't think that there is a graceful way for him right now i think the the conditions you know the humiliation that they suffered is is huge and now he needs to show a victory i mean they're destroying literally wiping out these cities in Donbass and the total uh, destruction 
in, in the wake of the attacks, because uh, he has to be able to show that he made these territorial gains and show the people that he upheld uh, the honor of Russia in this. But it's, uh, it's not been a great performance by his uh, military, and I think that's a longer-term issue that, the, that he will have to address and resolve right now. They're throwing more and more resources into this, and it seems that the, the quality of their armaments and stuff is not very great. And it caused a lot of reassessments um, in terms of the strategic situation in Europe. Wow. Uh, we got to get to our Bayudin here. He rightfully has a, a lengthy presentation today because it is a three-day yanta for those of us in the diaspora. Anything you'd like to tell us as we enter the holiday of Shavuos, a holiday of Jewish unity, a holiday, by the way, we should remind everybody again to, to be on guard in synagogues and Jewish institutions because, after all, a lot of people are going to be gathering over the next three days. Uh, any special message, Malcolm, on this quote-unquote well, area? I, I think your last point is very important and one that we can't emphasize enough. And it's something I know locally people have been meeting about the, you know, with the rise of anti-Semitic attacks and incidents and the, I'm sure there'll be special patrols by police. Every community should be in touch with their local precinct and, and work it out, make sure that there's a way of contact. Uh, you know, the situation today is, is not good here and, and across the country, and we have to take all the necessary precautions, not willing everybody will be safe, and there's no immediate threat uh, of any kind. Right. But, you know, the Iranians are threatening retaliation against Jews abroad. There are other threats. I don't think that, that again, anybody should feel that they're being targeted, but we really have to take the steps necessary to assure the security of, of our community and to celebrate this rules fully, to appreciate what we've been given, and the heritage that we have at a time when, when it's under threat by so many and they want to deny everything that, that we, the Torah's value and, and see the cultural revolution that goes on. It's a time to reinforce the message to our young people. No question about it, and I hope we take advantage of that and do so both personally and on a communal level as well. And I take this opportunity to wish you a wonderful Shabbos and a great holiday of Shavuos. And uh, I believe two weeks from today, please, God, we will reconvene. We'll let everybody know, obviously, what the schedule is. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos and a great Yom Tov. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us on Friday, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Malcolm will not be with us next Friday, but we will, please God, uh, have a weekly update two weeks from now. And again, uh, we will uh, update everybody as we get closer so that you're familiar with the exact schedule as we get into the summer months and uh, things get uh, somewhat erratic at times. We'll try to keep uh, the schedule as stable as possible and certainly keep the information coming so that you're uh, aware of what's happening here at JMNAM and the Nahum Siegel Network.